Hi everyone, welcome to the um, eTalmud podcast. I'm sorry that it's been so long since our last class, since our last lesson. Um, but the good thing is, is that we're able to start a new topic today. So we'll be able to uh, just start exactly where we left off. Um, we're on 10A, Yod Ahmed Aleph. Um, I do want to quickly go over the last um, four lines before the Mishnah just because I think we didn't do it, and I want to make sure we do that, and then we'll begin the new Mishnah. So again, 10a, Yod Ahmed Aleph, four lines before the Mishnah, four lines before the four bold letters, Mem, Tuf, Nun, Yod. And we're analyzing, sorry, we're analyzing a Pasuk, we're analyzing a, uh, a verse in the Torah. Um, it's from uh, Zechariah, and it's talking about a, 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 um, a the sorry state of the of the Jewish experience at the time, that for those that are going out and for those that are going in, there was no peace. Um, this was, by the way, this was before the building of the second temple. That's what we're talking about. The the experience in Israel before the building of the second temple. That's the literal. That's the the basic um, translation and the basic explanation of this verse. But now we're going to give him more of a homiletical explanation. Amar Rav, Rav explained, Once somebody goes from the words of the Mishnah to the words of the Torah, of the Tanakh, the five books of Moses, meaning if you've been studying the Mishnah, the oral transmission, the oral Torah, and now you go back to learning the written Torah, um, you will no longer have peace because... You were able to derive halacha, Jewish law, from the Mishnah, which you cannot do from the words of scriptures. Ushmul Omar and Shmuel says, This is actually talking about somebody who leaves the Gemara, the Talmud, um, and goes back to the Mishnah. Again, the Talmud is the oral is the oral Torah that is the part of the oral Torah that basically expands on the Mishnah and gives explanations and sources and reconciles contradictions. So if you go from the Talmud back to the Mishnah, you also will not have peace because you will not um you will again you won't be successful in learning Jewish law because you really need the explanations of the Talmud in order to really come to good conclusions. For Rabbi Yochanan, Amar Rabbi Yochanan said, Even if you go from one Talmud to the other Talmud, meaning from the Babylonian Talmud to the Jerusalem Talmud or vice versa, without fully grasping either one of them and you go to the other one, then again, you won't have the tools to learn halacha. You won't have the tools to really learn Jewish law. So you will therefore not have peace. Okay, we finished that. Now we're going to start a new fascinating topic, a new fascinating Mishnah. The connection that this Mishnah has to what we've learned so far in Chagiga is that one of the parts mentioned in this Mishnah is about the sacrifice of the Chagiga sacrifice. But what we're going to talk about right now is a fascinating discussion as to different laws in the Torah, um, different laws that we have in our vast um, library of Jewish law and where their sources are and how some have more um, clear sources in the Torah and how some have less clear sources in the five books of Moses and the Torah and the scriptures. And they're much more dependent. Their sources are much more dependent on the oral transmission. So that's what we're going to talk about now. So we'll begin the Mishnah. Heter nidarim porchin ba'avir. So the releasing oneself from the avow that they took 
that's porchen ba'avir. That's that's basically flying in the air. In other words, ve'ein lahem amasha yismochu. There's nothing for them to rely on. Meaning, what this means is, is that the idea that you can take a vow and then there's a mode, a way of releasing yourself from that vow by either bringing together a three-person court or having one great scholar listen to your listen to your vow and you can explain why circumstances have changed so that your vow should no longer apply and then we say that it can you can be released from it by those by the three-person court or by one great scholar but that idea we're saying is porchen ba'avir is hovering in the air. You don't have any. You, there, you can't find a real source in the Torah itself, in the words of scriptures itself, for this concept of being released from a vow. Hilchos Shabbos, the laws of Shabbos, um, Chagigos, the laws of the Chagiga offerings, Vahamilos, the laws of using sanctified property for non-sanctified use. Um, so the misuse of sanctified things. Harehim kahararim to hatuluyim b'sa'ara. They're like mountains um, being suspended by a hair. What does that mean? Shehein mikra muat, because there's very little scriptural source for these laws. Vahalachos marubos, and yet they have a lot of many, many details of laws um, when discussing them. So you have all of this, these huge areas of Jewish law that have very little source in the Torah. They have very limited source in the scriptures themselves, rather from in the oral tradition. And um, so you kind of imagine this little hair of scriptural source holding up this massive mountain of Jewish law. Um, okay. Hadinim, whereas when it comes to monetary law, the Ha'avodos, when it comes to the laws of the sacrificial services, the Ha'ataharos, and when it comes to Ritual purity, vahatumos, and ritual impurity, vaharayos, and illicit relations, yeshlahem amashayismochu, all of these have very clear scriptural support, vahenhen gufe Torah, and they are the real body of the Torah. What this means exactly, that this is the real body of the Torah versus the, all the laws we've mentioned up until now, such as Shabbos. What that means, the Gemara will explain, because it is very hard to imagine that it's speaking literally. Okay, now we're going to talk about the Gemara. Now we're going to go to the Gemara and we're going to analyze each line of this Mishnah, each line of this very interesting Mishnah. And what we're going to start with is an analysis of this concept that being released from your vow does not have any scriptural support. Tanya, we learned in Abraisa, Rabbi Eliezer Omer, Rabbi Eliezer says, Yeshlahem al in fact, being released from vows, they do have scriptural support. Shene'emar, as the verse says, and we're going to go through many different now opinions, Tanayuk opinions, so opinions from the times of the Mishnah, that show us scriptural support for the idea of being able to be released from one's vows. The first one is from Rabbi Eliezer, Shene'emar. He quotes, um, he quotes two verses that say the same wording. One is in Vayikra, one is in Leviticus, one is in Bamidbar, one is in Numbers. It says, Ki afli, it says, if a man shall clearly utter, and it says this two times, one in the context of the vow of Niziru to become a Nazir, which is a specific type of vow you can take, and one is a vow that you will give a certain amount of money to the Holy Temple, which is called Erechin. So in both of those contexts of vows, it says, if you shall clearly utter. And the idea is, is that you clearly uttering 
it, the fat reason it says it twice is to teach us that there's a clearly uttering to prohibit and there's a clearly uttering to permit. In other words, you have to you would basically explain the context of the vow you are taking, um, clearly utter it, and then you would now have this vow upon you. And then the second time it says clearly utter, that's to teach us that there's also a way to be released from this vow by clearly uttering, by explaining, by clearly explaining why this vow no longer um, should apply because the circumstances have changed. So that's the first, um, that's Rabbi Eliezer's source for the concept of being released from vows, arguing on our Mishnah that says that there is no scriptural support for it. Rabbi Yehoshua Omer, Rabbi Yehoshua says, no, um, this is the, the source, the scriptural source. Yeshlohem um, al yismochu. The concept of being released from vows does have scriptural support. Shinemar, as the verse says, asher nishbati vi'api. Because it says in the verse, um, this is a verse in Tehillim, in Psalms, I have sworn in my anger. And what's the idea that, what's the inference? Be'api nishbati v'chazarti bo. Which implies that when you swear in anger, there's something specific that would then apply, which is when I swear in anger, I can now retract from that vow once my anger subsides by explaining that the circumstance in which I made my vow no longer applies. I made it out of anger. I'm no longer angry. My vow should no longer apply and I should be able to be released. And that's why the, the, the writer of the Psalms wrote it like that to teach us that if you say something in a certain set of circumstances, you take a vow in a certain set of circumstances and those set of circumstances are gone, you can then find a way to release yourself. Rabbi Yitzchak Omer, Rabbi Yitzchak says, um, this is the source for being able to release yourself from a vow in the Torah. This concept does have a scriptural support. As the verse says, the verse says, this is, a, um, this is in Exodus. And it's in Shmos, and it says, all who had a gener- generous or a willing heart, and they would, you know, they brought um, they brought donations to for the construction of the tabernacle, the Mishkan in the desert. And what we see here is that it says, all who had a willing heart, which is basically telling us that um, that. If your heart is st- is willing, then this vow does apply. Once your heart is no longer willing, then you can be released of this vow. Again, the concept that if the circumstances change, you can find a release from your vow. Hananiah ben Achi, Rabbi Yehoshua Omer. Hananiah, the son of the brother of Rabbi Yehoshua, or the nephew of Rabbi Yehoshua, he explained, being released from a vow does have scriptural support. Shinamar, nishbati because it says... It says in, again, this is in Tehillim, it says in Psalms, I have sworn and I will fulfill lishmor mishpatetzikecha to keep the um, the uh, laws of your righteousness or your righteous laws. And what we, the, the source is, is the fact that it says I swore and I will fulfill or and I will keep. We see from there that there are some times that you can swear and you no longer have to keep. In other words, we see from here a source from scriptures that you can take a vow and there's a way to release yourself from it. Am Rav Yehuda, Amar Shmuel. Rav Yehuda said in the name of Shmuel, If I would have been there, meaning if I would have heard all of these Tanaic sages giving their source for a release from vows, for their scriptural support 
for a release from vows, if I would have been hearing that, I would have said as follows, that my source for being released from vows is better than all of yours. Shinamar, because the verse says very clearly in Bamidbar in Numbers, Lo Yachel Devaro, that he shall not profane his word, meaning he shall not cancel his vow. And the inference is, is who ain't Omochel? He's not allowed to release himself from his own vow. But somebody else or others can release him from his vow. So we have a very clear scriptural support of this concept. Omar Rava. And Rava, he comes to the same conclusion. All of the other sources, the ones that were quoted by the Tanaic sages for scriptural support for release from vows, they do they have a they have a way that they can be questioned, meaning they have a flaw in their argument. Levar except for Shmuel's, um, which we just mentioned, that it says um, you cannot um, release, but others can. The inference being that others can. That has no flaw in the argument, and therefore is a was is the one I he would choose. So now we're going to go through what is the flaw in each one of the opinions brought. Um, and that's what we're going to do right now. Because if you take a look at the scriptural support of Rabbi Lazar that he brought, which is that it says, Ki afli, you shall clearly utter, and it says it twice. So one is coming to teach us that you clearly utter when you make a vow, and one comes to teach us that you clearly utter when you release yourself from the vow. Maybe. Now, the words of Ki afli, you shall clearly utter, is actually coming to teach us like Yehuda, who said, Rabbi Yehuda, who said in the name of Rabbi Tarfon, the Tanya, because we learned in a Brisa. Um, and the Brisa is talking about the following case. One person says, if this man that is approaching is a Nazir, then I take upon myself to be a Nazir. A Nazir is a certain status that you can take upon yourself, and you have certain laws that come with that, such as no longer being able to drink alcohol. Um, and then at the same time, someone else said, um, if the man that is approaching is not a Nazir, then I will become a Nazir. Now, you would think then that if that person is a Nazir, then the one who said that if the person is a Nazir, I will become a Nazir, should have to become a Nazir. But Rabbi Huda Omer Mishum Rabbi Tarfon, Rabbi Huda said it in the name of Rabbi Tarfon, Li'olam ein echad mehem Nazir. No, neither of those people become a Nazir. Neither of those people become a Nazir. Why? Because we only gave Nazirus, we only, the concept of becoming a Nazir is only given if there is hafla, if there is a clear utterance. And what would that mean? It would mean that it cannot be dependent, it cannot have been conditional on something that is undetermined at this point in time. And that's what we need this verse to teach us for. We're not using this verse to teach us about release from vows. We use the language of clearly uttering by a nazir to teach us that you have to have a clear acceptance of this nazirut, of this type of vow, and making it conditional on something that is undetermined does not do the trick. Okay, and that's the problem then with Rabbi Eliezer's scriptural support. Even Rabbi Yeshua, and if you're going to talk about Rabbi Yeshua's scriptural support, what was his idea? That it says that I took an oath in my anger, which seemed to imply that you can, that uh, if you took it in your anger, there's a way to release yourself from it when your anger subsides. Dilma Hachikamer, no, maybe the reason King David or the author of the Psalms is using language like that 
of I took my oath in anger is to teach us it's just to teach us exactly what happened that God took an oath in anger um, out of God's anger obviously we can't really like that's not real language but it's language that speaks to the sense to the sensibilities of a human being but what all it's saying is is that um, is that God became very angry and therefore took a very severe oath that the Jewish people of that generation would not be able to go from the desert into Israel and rather would only be the next generation. So it's not coming to teach us anything different about a vow made in anger. It's just coming to teach us what historically happened. God became very angry and therefore took such a strong oath. And if you're going to talk about Rabbi Yitzchak's scriptural support for release from vows, which was the idea of nidiv libo, that you have a willing heart and therefore you give to the Mishkan, um, and the inference was is that if your heart, if you made a vow to give to the tabernacle, to the construction of the tabernacle, to donate, and then you no longer are willing, there's a way for you to be released. Maybe the fact that it says your heart is willing is there to teach us about something very different. Maybe it's coming to teach us to um, to exclude or to um, to basically. Teach unlike what Shmuel said. The Amar Shmuel, because Shmuel says, Gomar Belipo, if you've decided in your heart that you want to make a vow, you have to utter it with your mouth. You have to, if you don't say it, if you don't express that vow with your mouth, then you have not actually taken the vow upon yourself. The Hakamash Malan, and this verse will be coming to teach us that at least in the case of donations to the tabernacle, the even though you do not express it with your mouth, as long as you um, came to that conclusion in your heart, you now have to make good on your donation that you had uh, that you had thought of. Next person, ben um, and if you're going to say that, if we're going to talk about the scriptural support that Hananiah, the nephew of Rabbi Yeshua, had suggested, which was the idea where he said, where he quoted that verse that said, I have sworn and I will fulfill, which made it sound like there are some vows that you don't have to fulfill. In other words, you can be released from. Dilma Rav Gidal Amarav. Maybe this is more. Maybe we need that verse to teach us like Rav Gidal Amarav. Rav Gidal Amarav, for Rav Gidal said in the name of Rav, from where do we know that we can vow, we can take a vow to do a mitzvah? As the verse says, Nishbati, I took a vow, and I have fulfilled it, to fulfill your, or to keep your um, laws of righteousness. And all this would then be teaching us is nothing to do with that. There are some vows that you don't have to keep by releasing yourself. It's just teaching us that it is, Appropriate, or that is, um, it's appropriate to take a vow to fulfill a mitzvah in order to encourage yourself to do so. So, so far we have found, therefore, a flaw in each of the scriptural supports offered by the Tanaic sages. But Shmuel's scriptural support, that does not have any flaw, um, and that does not have any flaw. And this is what and this is Rava said in the name of Rav Nachman Yitzchak. This is a good example of the very popular saying of Tava Chada Pilpalta that one sharp pepper is better than a basket full of melons. So Shmuel, 
This sharp pepper is better than a basket full of melons. Okay. Now we're going to talk about, now we're going to analyze the next part of the Mishnah. The next part of the Mishnah told us that Hilcho Shabbos, that the laws of Shabbos, they're like the mountains that are suspended by hair. And we ask as follows, Michtav Ksivan, what are you talking about? That it's like, that, there, that the scriptural support is so little. Aren't there many um, times that it says that you cannot do forbidden labor on Shabbos in the Torah? So what are you talking about? That it's, a, that it's suspended by a hair, that there's not much scriptural support. So we answer, Lo tzricha, no, it's necessary, Licha de Rabbi Abba, for what Rabbi Abba said. The Amar Rabbi Abba, Rabbi Abba said, Hachofer guma b'Shabbos, if you dig a hole in your home on Shabbos, ve'ein sarech elala afara, and you don't need the hole for the holes, for the hole's sake, you only need the hole, you only dug the hole in order to get the earth that comes from that hole, right? You needed the earth. So if you dug a hole in your house for the earth and not for the hole itself, then you are exempt from liability for making that hole on Shabbos. In general, if you make a hole on Shabbos, then, um, and that hole is for the sake of the hole itself, you want a hole in your house for whatever reason, maybe for storage, then you are, then it's, then it's actually, then you are chayib, then you are liable, um, under the forbidden labor of building, you've built your house. You've built in your house. You've uh, you've you've done constructive building in your house. But when you don't need the hole for the hole itself, but rather for the earth, then you are exempt from liability. And this is the idea. So it's that it's this type of exemption that is like a mountain that is suspended by a hair. It doesn't really have prop. It doesn't have much scriptural support. Um, now we're going to talk about this idea, Kiman. Now, this concept of Rabbi Abba, that you're going to be exempt when you dig a hole in your house and you don't need the hole itself, you just need the earth. Kiman, who does this go according to? So we say it's Rabbi Shimon, this is going according to Rabbi Shimon, who says that when you do a forbidden labor, but not for the sake of its, of its designated purpose, then you are exempt from liability. So let's just give the, the classic case because we're going to need to talk about it. The classic case is you have a corpse inside of your house. Someone passed away on Shabbos, and now you have a corpse inside of your house. And you want to remove it from your house. So that means you have to bring it from a private domain into a public domain. And you're not allowed to bring something from a private domain into a public domain on Shabbos unless you have an A-roof, which is not the topic at hand. So, But you don't want this dead body inside of your house, so you remove it. So what Rebbe Shimon holds is that you are actually exempt from liability when you move it. Why? Because the real, the designated purpose of moving from a private domain into a public domain is because you want the thing that was in the private domain, you want it now in the public domain. Whereas for the dead body, you don't care where it is. You just don't want it in your house. So it's not that you want it in the public domain, you just want it out of your private domain. So that's that that therefore falls under the category of a malacha shenatzich lagufa. You don't do the you're doing the action, but not for the designated purpose of the forbidden labor. And Rabbi Shimon therefore says that you are a putter, you are exempt from liability. Whereas Rabbi Yehuda, he says you are actually um, liable in such a case as well. 
So that's what we're saying right now, that Rebbe Abba is going according to Rebbe Shimon, who says that you are exempt from liability in the case of the corpse. And this seemingly is a very similar case when you dig a hole, but not for the hole itself, but rather to have the earth. <coughs> but now the Gemara says, Afilu Yehuda. No, you can say it even goes according to Rebbe Yehuda. Now, that means then that you're going to have to differentiate between the case of the corpse and the case of the hole. And this is how we're going to differentiate. Hasamasakin. In the case of the corpse where Rabbi Yehuda says you are liable, there, there's still a constructive purpose to moving the corpse from the private domain into the public domain, because at least you have been misakin, you've rectified something. Now the the you know the, the corpse is no is no longer where is is no longer where you don't want it to be. Whereas in our case, whereas here, the act of making the the, the 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 whole on Shabbos, it, not only is it not for the intended purpose of the forbidden labor, but it's actually a destructive act because you're making a hole in your house that you don't want a hole in your house. You only want a hole in your house if you want a hole in your house. You don't want a hole in your house. You just need earth. So you're forced into making a hole in your house. Because it's a mechalkal type of act, because it's a, it's a destructive type of act, therefore even Rabbi Huda would agree in this case that you're actually exempt from liability. And now we're going to finish off. Now the Mishnah said that the, that the law of Shabbos, such as this law, that it's like a mountain that is suspended by a hair. So our question really is, is what is that hair that it's suspended by? So now we're on 10b. It's suspended, it's suspended by this very small hair. The Torah seems to forbid only thoughtful or somewhat translated as calculated types of labor. Um, but this idea of calculated labor being the what the Torah forbade is not written explicitly in the Torah. It's just written based on an ex, uh, a juxtaposition in the Torah because the the there's a the where do we know about the forbidden labors on Shabbos? We know it from a juxtaposition. There's a juxtaposition between the building of the tabernacle and um, the concept of keeping the Shabbos. And when it comes to the tabernacle, it doesn't just say um, when it comes to the labor done for the tabernacle, it doesn't just say labor. It says malechas machshevis. It says calculated labor or thoughtful labor with a designated purpose type labor. And then we say that the juxtaposition between the Mishkan and Shabbos teaches us then that it's only going to be calculated labor with a designated purpose that's going to be forbidden on Shabbos. So it's this that serves as the source, the little, the, 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 the hair that suspends the mountain of all of the types of t all of the times throughout Shabbos where you're going to be exempt because you did uh, the same type of labor, the forbidden labor, but not for the sake of the designated purpose of that labor. So we're going to stop here for now. Um, and uh, again, this is a this is a great part of Chagiga. Uh, this is a, such a fascinating part of Chagiga because we get to really take a look at how different parts of halacha develop, different parts of Jewish law develop. Take good care.